To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. The story of the UK is an economy that has got real momentum. What is broken can be repaired. What is ruined can be rebuilt. UK inflation is becoming much more homegrown. We have huge potential as an economy in the UK. This is a time to tell Israel there is a path to peace. Our plan for the British economy is working, but the work is not done. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Caroline Hepke. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Welcome to the programme. Caroline, are you marking X's off your calendar at the moment as well, we... For budget as day. As we count down to the budget. It's just yes. over six weeks. I feel is like this is, this is kind of an exciting time of the year if you're interested in following the public finances. Of course, speculation heavily underway as to what the Chancellor may announce. If you were to read some of the newspapers, you'd think the tax cuts were already definitely on their way. Perhaps a little bit of good news, though, for Jeremy Hunt from the latest public finance figures out today showing that because the government took in more taxes and paid less when it came to debt interest costs in December, they borrowed less than had been expected. It's the lowest December borrowing figure actually since 2019. So there might be a little bit more money rattling around that purse. Yeah, but is it going to be spent on tax cuts, tax cuts alone? We were talking only yesterday about the concerns around local government spending, uh, the issue there. And and there are so many other uh, problems that the government needs to resolve, including, of course, on defence spending. Yeah, interesting to see some reporting from our colleague Alex Wickham showing that the Treasury advisers actually told Rishi Sunak when he was becoming Prime Minister back in 2022 that any tax cuts would have a low impact on growth. But mm. perhaps it's growth and votes that Rishi Sunak might be a little bit more focused on when thinking about whether or not to make those tax cuts. Well, the UK joined America for more strikes against Iran-backed Houthi militants in Yemen. 18 airstrikes launched in just the past few hours. The clashes related to the Israel-Hamas war are the newest example, of course, of the demands on uh, the British taxpayers' purse and on defence forces, an issue that was raised by the Defence Secretary Grant Shapps only last week, saying that we are moving from a post-war to a pre-war world. He's been advocating an increase in defence spending so that the UK can meet all of these new challenges. We've come a long way since this. This is our first experience of this type of long-range sea warfare. In the North Sea and the Mediterranean, we could always return to our bases and dockyards. Here we have to stay at sea, but the Royal Navy soon adapted itself to these new conditions. Tomorrow, it may be the Ryukyus or perhaps the mainland of Japan. But whatever the job, the Royal Navy will be more than equal to the task. So, pretty rousing then. Archive recording from 1945 of the British fleet in the Pacific. Upbeat. But look at these statistics. The Royal Navy fleet has gone from more than 230 ships and aircraft carriers in 1960 to 30 in 2022. Well, let's discuss the state of the UK defence uh, forces now with Conservative MP and former chair of the Defence Select Committee, Tobias Elwood. Tobias Elwood, great welcome to have great to have you on the programme. Penny Mordaunt brought this up recently, 
about the depletion of the Royal Navy, she says, was a, a threat to British interests. How much division is there in your party when it comes to spending and investment in defence? I don't think there's any division, but you just touched on it. It's the state of economy that people look through uh, to recognise if it's possible. What we're seeing in the Red Sea is the fact that our security and our economy are increasingly entwined. And that's because our world, by any measure, is becoming more contested, more fragmented, uh, more dangerous. Uh, you, you referenced there 1945. Uh, we then had the end of the Cold War since then. There's been a gradual erosion in our, all our assets, land, sea, and air. But we're now seeing our world move into an ever more difficult era uh, with uh, new alliances forming, not least Russia, China, Iran, and so forth, becoming more assertive, taking advantage perhaps uh, and exploiting uh, our weakness, our timidity, uh, our lack of willingness perhaps to stand up and defend what's important to us. But we're now seeing perhaps a rekindling of that Cold War statecraft with the energy to actually challenge uh, strikes in the Red Sea because uh, that's affecting uh, the economy here. Our gas comes from Qatar, for example. If it's got to reroute around Africa, that's going to affect people's pockets. So people are seeing the relationship between having strong defence, us being able to step forward and defend what's important to us, and of course how that impacts on our economy as well. But there's also distraction and disunity. I mean, this is the year of a general election. That's the distraction. The disunity is clear. Penny Morden was calling for greater investment in the Royal Navy, uh, which is sort of her uh, focus, but in the armed forces overall. Grant Shapps, before becoming Defence Secretary, wanted um, defence spending to be 3% of GDP. Now he's talking about 2.5%. But the issue, yes, it's about the economic backdrop and also how quickly this can really be delivered by this government. Government. Yeah, you're right. But it's not just us. It's also who we are. What is our place in the world? That's why what any defense review does. It takes stock of the threats that are coming over the horizon, recognizes our interests, what we want to do, how we want to shape the world, and then advances our defense posture according to that. And what we've seen, as I say, since the end of the Cold War, a gradual erosion uh, in our defense capabilities, which now I'm afraid are being exploited by our competitors, not least direct to direct, direct uh, uh, conflict with us, but in the grey zone, you know, challenging us, for example, in the Red Sea, knowing that any disruption to, you know, global shipping will have a knock-on impact to Western uh, economies. So, so what sort of investment? We... What sort of investment is needed? What is the spending level in your eyes that needs to be achieved? Well, you need to move to two point five percent. I think that is now then recognize we were spending 4% GDP on defense during the Cold War. And, uh, but we need to take the nation with us. We need to recognize that if you do want extra funding for um, our uh, hospitals, our schools, our police, and so forth, the only way our economy can actually continue to uh, not just survive, but thrive and prosper uh, and bring inflation down is to make sure we have access to international markets. And Ukraine was another example when those grain ships couldn't get out of Odessa, how that rippled through and impacted the UK economy. So Britain's stepping forward. We're a P5 member of the United Nations Security Council. It's up to us not to do all the heavy lifting, but certainly provide the necessary hard so, power that we can then convene other nations to step forward with us and defend so does the message, is, uh, eroding international values. Does the message to voters then need to be no tax cuts, we need to invest in defence, that needs to be the priority and they shouldn't be signalling to voters that tax cuts are coming? 
Well, I don't want to preempt what uh, the Chancellor uh, is going to do in March as you count down on your calendar with, <laughs> and cross the days off. But certainly I would be making the very, very strong case to say our armed forces um, are excellent. They're very professional. They're uh, well equipped, but there's not enough equipment. It's very niche. It's very um, uh, high octane stuff. It's you know top of the class. But we don't have enough ships, for example, simply to cover the, the operations, uh, operational space that we're now looking at. Likewise, with our army, at the end of the Cold War, we could mobilize five divisions. We're down to one today. In the RAF, we could mobilize 36 fast jet squadrons. We're down to six today. We simply cannot defend our international interests with an armed force this size. And it's not just us. It's NATO as well. Everybody has shrunk over the last couple of decades. And we need to wake up the fact that we've entered a new era of insecurity. This isn't just the next couple of years, but by any measure, we know, will our world be more safe or less safe in five years' time? If the answer to that question is to say it's going to be less safe, then we need to prepare for that. Mm. Although many will wonder whether we are defending our uh, interests around the world or if we are following the US line in defending the US sort of led world order as an addendum to them. Do you think that the issues that have happened in the Red Sea make the case for that increased defence spending? Do you think that, that it has pricked the consciousness of voters? Yes, I think very much so. But, I mean, you say the American-led order. We don't do everything that the Americans say. And ultimately, sometimes they do things that we say. We have, uh, you know, we have a, a history, a reputation of understanding our world around us. That's because of our own history, our own connectivity and so forth, of seeing some of the challenges that come over the horizon and put those fires out. Unfortunately, because we've become a little timid, a little risk-averse um, over the last couple of decades, uh, then there are arguably too many fires for the West you know, to cope with at the moment. The threshold of capability of keeping global order is being severely tested because of the multiple um, challenges that we face across the world. We've entered a very difficult era and we need to wake up to that. It cannot look at Britain in a siloed perspective. Half of our GDP is affected by international headwinds and that should focus the minds of those in the Treasury to recognise why it's important to invest in defence. I know you're saying that you don't want to preempt anything that's going to happen in the budget, and and I. But I'm wondering if you're if the Chancellor was to ask for your opinion, would you be saying more defence spending and no tax cuts and allocate the resources in that him, way? I, d- I don't think it's as simple as binary as that. There will be, you know, you can reduce taxes, which then can prompt and encourage further growth. If we take the hospitality sector, I represent Bournemouth. And they are desperate to see VAT on hospitality reduced to 10%. Now, that will cost £4 billion, uh, but they're making £54 billion from hospitality, and they'll gain more in corporation tax. But if these businesses close down simply because life has been tough, then there'll be less money, less revenue coming into the Treasury. So there there is a balance to be had. But ultimately, yes, I I did request when I met the Chancellor last week, please recognise where we are. Please recognise the role we play on the international stage. It is time now to increase defence spending at least to 2.5%. One final thought. Are we on the path to global war? And what do you think is the biggest threat, in your mind, to Britain in the next five to ten years? This was the warning also from Grant Shapps. Yes, we are. We're already in a Cold War. We're a challenge between the great superpowers uh, today. It's going to be China's century. We still haven't come to terms with the fact that China will 
economically, militarily, uh, and technologically probably surpass the United States. How are we going to come to terms uh, with that? There's no particular off-ramp that's out there at the moment, no strategy to deal with the, the colossal rise of uh, China. And at the same time, um, you know, Western capability, as I mentioned, to deal with uh, challenges to our dated global order um, are, are reaching a, a, a threshold. I think the high tide mark of Western liberalism after the Second World War was probably when we decided to depart from Afghanistan. And that gave the indication to authoritarian states that they can take advantage of that. They can push their, uh, their boundaries uh, with little resistance from the West. We need to wake up to that. Uh, so we are heading towards a third world war, but not in like the second. It'll be a world at war where there will be challenges between um, uh, the superpowers through proxy states. And a lot of it will be in the gray zone. It'll be an economic battle. Uh, on the current trajectory, our world will splinter into two. There'll be China, Russia, and much of the global south versus a shrinking West. That, I'm afraid, is where we're heading, unless we wake up and recognize that uh, there's some big things to be done, greater statecraft to be projected. And Britain has a role to play uh, if we lift our, lift our heads above the parapet. Tobias Elwood, thank you so much for being with us. That is the Conservative MP and former chair of the Defence Select Committee with that strong warning about what the UK needs to do. Well, from divisions in Cabinet to divisions among the Houses of Parliament, the House of Lords voting to delay the government's controversial plan to send migrants to Rwanda. It's a blow for the Prime Minister, who only last week used a press conference to urge peers not to interfere with a plan that's already been voted on by MPs. Joining us now is our UK government editor, Stuart Biggs. Stuart, great to have you with us. What exactly have the Lords done? The Lords effectively have taken aim at the... Uh, agreement that the UK has with Rwanda that that sort of underpins the uh, deportation program. So rather than rather than this being about the bill itself, which of course cleared the Commons uh, last week, this is sort of uh, having a, having a go at the um, at, 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 at the sort of premise of the bill, if you like, that that Rwanda is a safe place for for this deportation program to go ahead. Uh, it's the the Lords itself doesn't have the ability to block that agreement entirely, but what it does do is that it raises uh, questions about uh, the legality, especially if the government doesn't act on what the Lords has said, and, and, and I think that will be how this plays out. Yeah, I mean, it's having a good go at throwing some roadblocks in the way, isn't it? How much of a setback do you think this is to the endeavour that the government's undertaken here? So the, the, what commentators are saying is that this... The old, this well, it depends a little bit on what the government does. If the government acts on what the Lords has said, which is to you need that this agreement needs more safeguards to ensure that Rwanda is safe, that's one thing. The, the sort of wisdom at the moment suggests that the government won't do that. It will ignore what the Lords has said. And therefore, it, 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 this plays out in the long run. So if you imagine that the, the bill itself clears Parliament, clears both Houses of Parliament, say sometime in the spring, the risk now for the government is that by ignoring the Lords at this point, they've opened the door to more legal challenges uh, to the programme itself, so sort of from spring onwards. OK, so that's the legislative process, but what about for Rishi Sunak? How, how bad a look is this for him? So that's a question. Part of, part of this Rwanda 
uh, you know, idea. It seems part of it is built to, around the idea that yes, the, the government has promised to tackle uh, what it calls illegal uh, immigration, and so therefore that's a policy pledge, and it's core to the prime minister's agenda. And so on that basis, anything that sort of puts a potential delay on that is clearly a bad thing. But there's another aspect of this, which is you know, the government. There's a sense that this government kind of wants the fight rather than, you know, the policy itself is one thing, but actually the to be seen to be having a fight with the Lords is also something that they they clearly, you know, don't don't appear to be, um, you know, unhappy about. And that's the sort of underlying sentiment behind his press conference last week. It was very much an echo of the Brexit years. It's mm -hmm. like the will of the people, the unelected upper chamber getting in the way, don't get in the way. And that. And there's a sense that Sunak is embracing this as part of a sort of uh, political positioning ahead of the election. Yeah, but, you know, um, what is good for campaigning is that good policy. Um, the timing of the first flights to Rwanda has become this kind of... I think it's an obsession, really, isn't it? It's almost a daily question about when these flights might actually happen, when these migrants or people who are refused, um, you know, the, the right to stay in Britain might actually be sent to Rwanda. This this rather goes back to the sort of the the sort of dearth of uh, policies in the King's speech uh, at, at the sort of you know the beginning of this Parliament, and really you were left with that feeling that the government's two big things for this year is get Rwanda done, the the, pl the policy sort of up and running, and then hope that the economy is, you know, improving by the time people go to the polls. And that beyond well, that, you know, of course there are other things that the government wants to do, but those are the sort of t twin pillars, if you like. And, and everything is being built around these two things ahead of the vote. And so, you know, th this is why... From a policy-making perspective, from a governance perspective, this is not a great time. From a from a politicking, campaigning perspective, Sunak's team will argue that they're you know doing the things that they want to do at this point. But is does the focus on Rwanda and the the prime minister expending so much of his public capital on this as well? Does that actually limit the possibility that the Tories will be able to trump the economic achievements that they they might point to? It, it certainly has runs the risk of sort of dominating political discourse, and there are members of, as we, as my colleagues have reported recently, that there are members of Sunak's team that are sort of desperate to get this conversation moved on to the economy, and there are signs again today with the uh, public finance data showing that the economy that there are uh, signs that the economy is improving. If, if not the sort of headline rate, but the, but the sort of under, underlying uh, numbers. But the, but the longer that this immigration debate and the Rwanda debate goes on, the less, that, the less sort of political space that there is to focus on these things. That will change, I think, in the run-up to the budget in early March. And I think we will get a sort of relentless focus on the idea of tax cuts as being uh, the key to, key to the election. Whether that you know whether that uh, turns out to be the case. The polls suggest that it won't be the case. That you know that that sentiment is kind of locked in at this point. That you know that we've been through this cost of living crisis. We've been through this surging inflation, and that voters aren't sort of you know 
necessarily changing their mind based on 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 tax cuts at this point but nevertheless that's that is the strategy on the Tory side Okay, Stuart, thank you so much for being with us. That is Bloomberg's UK government editor, Stuart Biggs, then bringing us up to speed on the latest developments when it comes to Rwanda. Well, Stuart mentioned there the focus on the economy as we move closer to the election. Both the Conservatives and the Labour Party have been out stressing their business-friendly policies as well as we move towards the general election. This particularly in evidence last week when the Chancellor and Shadow Chancellor were in Davos meeting business leaders. Of course, we heard from both of them last week. But we got an in- insight into the conversation around the UK at Davos from the City of London Corporation's Policy Chairman Chris Hayward. He told us about what the city's expecting to hear from both parties between now and the election? So I think the uh, the government delegation was received very positively. I think there was an air of optimism, actually. I think an equally a recognition that, of course, this is going to be the year of polls when 50% of the world's population, 2 billion people, are voting across the globe. Um, just to be clear, of course, ministerial moves change all the time. In the end, Kemi couldn't come, but we had the Chancellor, we had the Foreign Secretary, and we had the Investment Minister all on a panel on which I, I spoke as well, and which we hosted uh, as well. Uh, so I think that the government and indeed, to be fair, the opposition uh, were both uh, touting their uh, uh, ideas, their policies, the things they will do if they win the general election this year. Um, and broadly speaking, uh, I think it was uh, it was uh, it was positively received by incidentally a record number of people attending Davos uh, this particular year. How I, I'm, I'm interested in what the reception from business was to, to Rachel Reeves versus uh, Jeremy Hunt. Was there a sense that businesses were more interested in the Labour representatives there because of where the polls are pointing? Well, I mean, I think this is the uh, we're in that election fever season and everybody's pitching for every vote. I think the message from the government was, uh, you know, don't let Labour ruin it. We've got inflation coming down. We've got interest rates coming down. Uh, the Chancellor talked, talked a lot about the next generation of high-paid jobs coming from the technology sector. That's an interesting statement because here in the City of London, for the first time last year, technology growth was above that of financial services. Uh, so I think that there's something to be to be said in that. The Chancellor talked a lot as well about um, foreign direct investments mm. and how we bring them in, which he mentioned, of course, in the autumn statement. I mean, I think the lines, the battle lines are beginning to form now because um, Labour, as you say, have talked about not hiking uh, taxes on on, on, on business. They're very keen to court business. This will be, I think, if it's elected, a business-friendly Labour government because I think for them, this is an area where they realise whoever wins the general election, there's no money in the public pot. So how do we work with the private sector? How do we work with the city to ensure that we get economic growth? And both parties are chasing economic growth, which is something we've spoken about many times on this programme. Yeah, absolutely. Mind you, I'm amazed um, you're you're sounding very um, balanced and, and even-handed. Having said that, the Labour Party have had a huge lead in polling terms over the Conservatives now for more than a year. And even the Telegraph talking about how Rachel Reeves has finally made it to the top table, the world's elite fell in love with Labour. I mean, this is the Telegraph, for goodness sake. Um, in terms of the 
uh, position, though. How much do you understand about what Labour is actually going to do for financial services? How much growth there might be? Are they going to carry on things like um, you know, the reforms to try to um, increase uh, pension funds investing in, in UK businesses? Are they going to just scrap that or do you think they would continue? We, we know very little about whether they're going to, uh, what they're going to do with taxation and financial services. So look, let, let, let me say straight away, my, my job is to give a, a balanced view because we're non-party political, sure. so I'm not going to speak for either side in the debate. What I would say is uh, Labour have pledged to completely reform the pension system. So if anything, I think they will go further than potentially the government's gone with the Mansion House compact. Uh, but again, at this stage, it's early in the campaign, everything's scant on detail, uh, and we can only work with what Labour are telling us at this particular time. And clearly, with a year potentially run in, they're not going to release everything in one batch in Davos. So there's individual ideas being floated, policies. I think they're still very much in the mood of sounding out what the city wants, uh, what uh, what is necessary for the economy, what they will inherit. You hear them talk about that a lot, that they don't really understand entirely, and they won't because they don't have that access today to what they're actually economically going to inherit. So we can only really put together what what they're telling us. Um, certainly what they're telling business at the moment is positive. They are launching at the end of this month a financial services review uh, and uh, they will have their first Labour Party business conference at the beginning of next month, which I shall attend as well. So we'll find out more as these things come forward. But there's very little on the table to be concrete to debate and discuss at this moment. But do expressions like we will go further than excite people in the city at the prospects that that could be the case or is it something to be concerned about? No, no, I think it's I think it's positive. I think, you know, anything that either party offers to the city which stimulates growth, which stimulates new jobs, which stimulates new businesses, which stimulates in turn tax receipts is going to be positive. We want them to understand as well the importance, and I've said this many times, of keeping UK businesses in the UK and not allowing them to go across the pond to the US and to list there. So, Regulation will play a major role in all of this financial regulation and both parties will need to say how far they're prepared to go in ensuring that regulation is an innovator as well as a regulator. How worried though are you that there's going to be basically potentially a year of stagnation because of the election and we don't know when it's going to be, maybe it's going to be in autumn. That's terrible for UK business and especially the drought in IPOs in London that, that has reigned for a couple of years. Yeah, uh, Caroline, it's not good because it impacts on confidence uh, and it always happens that in the run-up to a general election policymakers are not focusing so much on policy but more on putting out their policies to the nation. So it is a year when there there needs to be stability as far as we're concerned because keeping confidence and keeping business confidence is absolutely essential if the economic progress that's being made at the moment is to be maintained, continued uh, and, and driven forward. Uh, we've been monitoring reports that the Chancellor is set to meet executives from banks tomorrow to discuss their, the government's uh, next steps to stimulate confidence. Do you know anything about that meeting or what sort of expectation would you have around the topics to be discussed? Well, uh, Stephen, this came out at the, the end of last week and uh, really it's scant detail again. Um, I think you're right. They're going to talk to the banks about how they can play a role in stimulating growth and getting more money to high growth British business 
businesses. This is very much on the theme of stuff around fintech. We've talked about life sciences. We've talked about what the Chancellor's talking about, about those those high-paid technology jobs. So I would expect the, uh, the Chancellor to be talking to the banks about what more they can do to contribute to the growth agenda uh, and to these, these new businesses. Are you in favour of tax cuts? Lots of hints that it's going to be a tax-cutting March budget. Look, who doesn't want tax cuts? We, we all want a low-tax economy, and, and business wants a low-tax economy. But frankly, that has, with, has to be within the bounds of fiscal responsibility. So the question about tax cuts is, are they affordable? What is the room for the Chancellor to move? Um, what we wouldn't want to see is just a giveaway election budget. What we'd want to see is it based on really confident information that it's affordable and that it can actually do what it proposes to do, stimulate growth. But yes, of course, in principle, you wouldn't expect me to come on here and say I'm not in favour of tax cuts. Well, that was the City of London's policy chairman, Chris Hayward, speaking to us on Bloomberg Radio. Yeah, absolutely. Um, very interesting, of course, because Chris Hayward is, uh, you know, right in there in that policy mix when it comes to financial services, huge British export. You know, he hosts the Chancellor at Mansion House, you know, several times a year. Mm. Um, and some of the big policy speeches that Jeremy Hunt has delivered have been actually at Mansion House, um, including sort of reforms to try to get more investment and therefore more growth into the UK. Um, but yet again, making that point that we've heard so many times about mm. Labour and the lack of detail on, yes. on policies. And, and look, we heard it there from Chris Hayward, the financial industry wants to know more about the going further that's been promised by the Labour Party in terms of reforms when it comes to finance. Yes, and that of course he's in favour of tax cuts if they are promised, but it's how you deliver them and the expense um, of it and, and how you manage that whole process. So really interesting uh, to hear from Chris Hayward, of course, who did an event in Davos with uh, Jeremy Hunt. More tax cuts, Caroline. You brought us back to where we started. That's it from <laughs> us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe. Give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by James Walcock and our audio engineer was Marufa Hussain. I'm Caroline Hepke. And I'm Stephen Carroll. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.